Welcome to The Field. I'm your host, Zoe Pallier, and I am thrilled to have Koss Marte here with us today. In 2009, at the age of 23, Koss was arrested as the leader of a multi-million dollar cocaine operation. At the time, he was grossly overweight and was warned by his physician that if left unchecked, his lifestyle was likely to kill him. Faced with this prognosis, Koss started to get in shape using the tools he had, his prison cell and his own body weight. Within six months, he lost 70 pounds and replicated his successful formula with 20 other people incarcerated alongside him, helping them to cumulatively lose over 1,000 pounds. After he was released from prison, Koss launched Conbody, a prison-style boot camp that hires formerly incarcerated individuals to teach fitness classes. Conbody has worked with over 25,000 clients, supported many folks coming home from prison, and has been featured in over 200 major media outlets. In today's episode, we will talk about how growing up in poverty led to the hustle, the importance of mentorship through re-entry, and the impact of employment on recidivism. I learned a lot from Koss, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. Season one of The Field is brought to you by Castles, Brock, and Blackwell. Castles has one of the largest business law practices in Canada and is a market leader serving all sectors for over 130 years. Full transparency, I work at Castles and am beyond grateful for their generous support of this podcast. The things I love most about Castles are the firm's commitment to promoting a more diverse, equitable, and inclusive firm and their ongoing support of the communities in which they operate. I look forward to sharing more about some of the exciting initiatives taking place at Castles over the course of the season. To find out more about Castles, check out castles.com or on Twitter at Castles, C-A-S-S-E-L-S. It is such a pleasure to have you here today, Koss. Thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate the opportunity to spread the message. So I'd love to start by just going back to the beginning. Can you tell us a little bit about your childhood? Yeah, I mean, I I grew up like I'm in the Lower East Side right now in New York City, but I grew up uh, three blocks away from here. My mom still lives in a small constrained tenement apartment that looks like a a real prison cell. Um, But yeah, I mean, growing up around this neighborhood, it was not your gallery and your poodles that you see today. It was a lot of a lot of drugs, a lot of criminal activities um, straight in your face. I mean, I, I remember growing up here and like. Every 10 steps I took, I, I had seen like a heroin needle at the age of like five, six, you know, and, and, and that was just like what it was. You know, there was dope lines coming up my building. There was, it was just very drug infested. And that's the world I grew up in. And I thought that was normal. You know, I, I used to hang out with them. My mom used to leave me on the corner, you know, because that was like the people that raised me. And the people that raised me, I wanted to be like them. Mm-hmm. My mom didn't come much from the Dominican Republic. She worked in a factory and uh, we slept on my aunt's couch for a while. And as a kid, I would I would ask her, like, you know, I want things. You know, I want I want to buy, you know, a Nintendo or an Atari. And, you know, her first answer was always like, no, I can't afford it. And it was just very discouraging for me. I, I just like wanted things that everybody else had and it wasn't it wasn't fair for me. So I. I got it on my own, you know, I I remember as a kid, like going from apartment to apartment, you know, collecting cans and beer bottles and and exchanging them for nickels in the bodega. And 
and uh, I'm talking about like five, six years old and, you know, opening up the fire hydrant and cleaning cars and all that stuff, just like straight hustling. And then I saw, I saw that life, you know, of people making money on the street. And so I, that's what I, that's what I wanted to do because I saw my cousins too, that were on the corner with chains and, and the girls and the cars and all that stuff. And I was like, Hey, this is what it is all about, you know? And so, mm-hmm. you know, it's to like, start doing drugs, make money. And do you remember how it started? Like what was that first kind of step into selling drugs? Yeah, absolutely. I remember the first time I started dealing drugs because I was, as a kid, I was in junior high. Like everybody knew like my cousins were the guys on the corner. We were already smoking weed, you know, and like they used, everybody used to scramble up and bring like 50 cents, a dollar, you know, we used to buy a nickel bag. And uh, and I would not put any money, but just buy like the the twenty five cent Philly, and roll it up for everybody. And and I kept doing wow. that for a little while, like going back and forth, you know, uh, asking my cousin for you know a couple bags and all that stuff. And I became this middleman, and I think it it just became like a supply and demand for me. Like, you know, everybody kept doing this, and I was running errands, and then I wow. I managed to save a hundred dollars up, and uh, I hit up my cousin. I was like, yeah, I want to ounce of weed bought an ounce for a hundred bucks. It was like straight, like garbage, you know, back in the day you had the seeds, like sticks, stems and all that stuff. So, uh, I, I remember, you know, making a whole bunch of nickel bags. I think I, I made close to 60 nickel bags and I sold them, made 300 bucks. And from there, there's, there's where it started. And then it obviously turned into a totally different game, kind of blew up. And then, Tell us about uh, that moment where things kind of came crashing down. Yeah. I mean, when it blew up, it was just a crazy uh, moment. I mean, it it was it was like progressing over time. It was not like, you know, everything was right in my hand. Like, you know, I stood in the corner day after day and showed up continuously, kept delivering great product. And I'm talking about like cocaine. I got I got involved with dealing cocaine at 14 um, and crack. But the neighborhood started changing when I was around 18, 19 years old in the early 2000s. A lot of people with money started moving in. You know, this was like the, everybody talks about Williamsburg, but this was like Williamsburg before Williamsburg. You know, this neighborhood started to get really getting gentrified. And, and I, was, I was not afraid, uh, you know, to go up to people and tell them, hey, do you want cocaine? And like, it just started going crazy. And it was just a... Uh, uh, not the smartest uh, guerrilla marketing tactic, but it worked. <laughs> but it, it worked, and uh, and it blew up. You know, at nineteen, I was making over two million dollars a year. I had seven cell phones because each phone only held fifteen hundred to twenty five hundred contact numbers. And after that, it just kept blowing up. I had everybody that was working for me in cars, and you know, their own spots and all that stuff. And it, it was just a crazy experience. And then at twenty three. Uh, I was arrested and it was not my first time arrested. I was arrested nine times. Um, so I was in and out, you know, since the age of 13, actually, and just stuck in the system. But I never thought I was going to get caught at a bigger level like this because I always thought I was going to play it all smart, you know, and I was smarter than, than the cops. And I was meeting like different criteria. I was always carrying less like than an eighth. I was not I didn't have a lot of drugs. I was just collecting money and all that stuff. And and then it went down. And I was sentenced to seven years in prison with, with five parole. And uh, what was your conviction? 
So I was uh, charged as a kingpin. I ended up pleading out to a felony A2, which is pretty much the highest drug charge you could get. And, and that was it, you know. So, okay, now I want to sort of fast forward over your time in those facilities a little bit and take you up to the days and weeks leading up to your release. Did you know in advance that you were set to be released? Uh, well, I knew, like, I was, um, you know, you serve your time. And, and so I, I actually uh, applied for, like, this early release program that I, I try to get into. It was hard. You know, I, I, I did my time. I was still doing, like, crazy stuff while I was incarcerated. I was still managing the business, like, you know, having people do stuff from the outside and still selling drugs while, you know, having officers sneak me in stuff and just all the crazy, you know, stuff that you, you've probably seen before and probably, like, oranges in the black, but, like, officers are, it's just a reality. Like, I remember at the time that I was about to be released, I didn't get released because I, I got into altercation with an officer that, that led me into solitary. Wow. And then how long did you spend in solitary and what was that kind of lag time? How much longer did you have to stay in? I, I did a year. Another year? A year in solitary? No, I, I did a total of eight months in solitary, but... Wow. What was the impact of eight months in solitary? I mean, it's... I don't know. A lot of people complain about quarantine and, and, and being locked down and being, you know, at home. But, you know, in those conditions is not, it's just, it's just crazy. You know, like mm -hmm. you get two showers a week, you know, you, you get fed your food through a little slot. Sometimes they throw the food at you and it just falls on the ground and you got, you got to eat it because there's no, not another meal that's going to come by. You know what I mean? Or, you know, sometimes they don't feed you, you know. I remember being in there in the summer and, uh, you know, there's no AC, no fan. You, you, you barely could get air. You, it feels like over a hundred degrees and you're like sticking your nose in between the cell doors to try to get a little bit of fresh air. But it's just uh, a very inhumane uh, space. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, it, it's really designed to break people, right? Oh, absolutely. And then, so, you spend this time in solitary, you have another couple months that you have to serve, and then you know that you're coming up to your release date. Is there anything that's happening in that time to help you with that transition, to provide you with any sort of supports or resources or anything like that? There is no, tra there's no assistance. You know what I mean? Like the transitional services that they give you, they basically give you like a ruler, a paper, and a number two pencil and tell you like, Today, we're going to draw out our resume, you know, and you, you put your name on the top. Or like, it's just super old school. Like, am I literally going to grab a piece of paper and a number two pencil and make my resume and turn that in when I come home to a, a store manager? It's just not realistic, you know, like they, there's no real, I don't know about now. I know there's a lot of programs going in there doing incredible work, but like, that's how they prepared me for the outside, especially, you know, going in with a flip phone, coming out with a touchscreen phone and, and being backed up in technology. Like, it's just a whole different world. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and speaking of that, so you, you come out into this new world. And if you think back to that day where, you know, like the doors open and now you've walked out a free man, what 
was that experience like just even thinking about the sounds and what you're you know what you're seeing what you're hearing what you're feeling all of that yeah i remember like i don't know especially like coming out to new york it was just fast paced moving i remember going to uh uh, I was released from Lakeview Correctional Facility. Uh, that's like maybe an hour past Buffalo, you know, like southwest of Buffalo. And we get to like Buffalo and it, it's slow over there. So you really didn't feel it, but you feel great that you're out. You know, you, you the air tastes different. Everybody that uh, there was a few people that was released with me. Everybody that got released with me, we, we all went to McDonald's and like stuffed our faces with Big Macs because it was like, you know, you don't get you don't get that food inside. You know what I mean? And and uh, that was like one of the best tastiest things ever. Um, and then I, I remember going to Buffalo International Airport, and it was just fast paced moving, and I felt a little bit dizzy. You know, I remember, you know, going up to a lady, asking her if I could use her phone, so I could call my family to tell them I'm going to get on the flight, and, and so they could pick me up from JFK. The lady looked at me like, what, you don't have a phone? You know, what do you mean? I was like, well, I was in the system, you know, I was, I just, I, I'm released. And she looked at me like she was a little bit scared, you know? And I was like, don't worry, you know, you, you know, you can make the phone call. I just need to use the phone like two seconds real quick. And, you know, there's no more pay phones around. So like, that's the only way like you communicate right now. And so I remember seeing like the first touchscreen phone you know, pre going in, I remember there was like the touchscreen iPods. And that was like the first iPod that was like touchscreen. And, you know, that was like a huge thing. And so when she passed me like this device, I was I thought it was like, I, I had no idea it was like a, a phone, you know, I thought I'm like, what, what is like, and she was, she was like, I, I, I just looked confused. And I was like, can you just make the call for me? <laughs> and I gave her the number. And I called, you know, and I remember getting into that flight. It was a very shaky, small little plane. I'm like, I think I'm going to die in this plane. (laughs) Uh, And I get back, I get home, and I remember, like, my family was there. They picked me up. Uh, My son was there, and um, it was just a weird moment. Like, I, I think he... I didn't see him for the last year I was incarcerated because I wasn't, I didn't want him to see me while I was in, in the box or anything. You know, um, when you're in solitary and you get a visit, you're, you, you remain in shackles, you know? So, uh, I didn't want him to see that, you know, and, and mm-hmm. you're behind a cage, so you can't even touch the person. And how did it feel to get to see him? It felt incredible, but he was like, a little bit i remember seeing him like he was just didn't have that much emotions you know and and i think it took a little while for him to get you know get used to i was home and i was part of his life and and now like you know we we talk all the time you know i mean and it's just a different dynamic but i i mean like it's it's just different, you know. A lot of people think like you're gonna run to your kid and you're gonna hug them and you're gonna embrace them, you know. But I think as a six year old kid, you know, he was just like confused, you know. Mm-hmm. There was something that you said a little bit earlier when you were talking about this woman who who helped you make the phone call and just her apprehension at first about 
you know, you and the fact that you had been in the system and interacting with you. Are there any other stories that stand out for you in, in that first little while that you were out that highlight that stigma? Um, yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, first of all, you don't have a New York State ID. You have a parole ID. And so I remember going to TSA and like standing on the security line and having like this parole ID and you're like, you, you just like now, like you, you're a certified criminal, you know what I mean? Like, this is what you're released with. You, you don't even have a New York state ID. You know what I mean, like you, this is what I'm going to hand them so I could get on the plane. So right away, I, as I handed that, like, they just looked at me like, you know, with this face of discrimination, you know, mm-hmm. and that is what it is. But that that's, I think that that's something else also that needs to be changed. Why? Why can't people be prepared with actual real ID? You know, that's a huge problem. I think um, that nobody really knows about except for those who are coming out. You know, you're released with this parole ID and you're supposed to go to DMV and it only lasts 60 days. But some people can't even get to the DMV and you have to pay for your your, your photo ID. So people don't have the money for that. It, it becomes like a cash 22 and a, and a loophole, you know, like you. And then if you get stopped by the cops and your idea is expired, like it's... Yeah, that the only way that you can identify yourself is with a card that says, hey, I'm on parole. And then on the flip side of that, is there anyone who stands out for you who was willing to look past that record to give you a chance? Yeah, I mean, there was... I took. I came home, I took advantage of a lot of programs that were offered in the nonprofit space, in the criminal justice space. I mean... Uh, I think it was difficult for them too. like, you know, they're trying to find you a job. They helped me, you know, develop my resume, you know, this program called Fortune Society, which is one of the largest criminal justice programs in, in New York City. They helped me, but it was hard when they would send me out to like interviews and, you know, I would face that discriminatory body language or tone or be asked about my criminal history and or when I would like go job hunting and go to like Herald Square and Times Square, you know, and I would see these managers after I handed them an application when that said, have you ever been convicted of a felony and like see their reaction, you know, on the top line. But um, there was a lot of individuals, you know, I, I, I have a, a specific mentor, uh, Michael Rothman, who I pick his brain all the time, but he uh, he helped me out. So I met him through another nonprofit organization and he like really helped because I came out with the Combody idea, you know, from prison. So I like Mm -hmm. started doing the workouts in the park day one. You know, I knew what I wanted to do. And so there was this program called Career Gear and they had like this mentor matching program. And I told uh, one of the like, I think she was like the director, incredible person. She she connected me with him and we started, you know, talking and meeting and he started giving me homework. And like, I was running the company with an iPhone 4. No, I had nothing, you know what I mean? I, I, I Or iPhone 3. I, I don't remember what, what it was in 2013, but it was just, uh, it was difficult, but I, I strived and he gave me a lot of homework. He taught me how to use Excel and all this stuff and build a proper business plan and all that, you know, and connected me and became my customer as well, you know, so. And how valuable was it for you to have someone like that in your corner? I think it was it, it was life-changing, you know what I mean? 
it was not, I had my mindset already changed that I was not going to go back to the life of crime, but having that person that is going to encourage you and like give you assignments and, and follow up with you and see how you're doing and, and make me an equal, I think primarily was like a big thing. You know, he had a, he has a huge circle. He's a three, I think two or three time entrepreneur, sold this company, all this stuff. So highly successful and, and would bring me to these circles, you know, and, and would, you know, introduce me as like, you know, my brother, you know, like this is like he's, you know what I mean? Like somebody that that didn't uh, point out my wrongdoings, but, you know, lifted me up with the, the things I was doing currently. You know? Treated you as a human. Exactly. Exactly. And so you kind of started in the park on your phone and Michael was supporting you. And then tell us about the journey of how Con Body grew to be what it is. Um, it's been a crazy journey. And, and we, we actually been documenting this for a very long time uh, with a four-time Academy Award director. She's been following me around for the last six and a half years. So awesome. Extremely hard. You know, like I, I, I was sleeping on my mom's couch. You know, I had nothing and just kept showing up twice a day. I was going out to the park, going up to people randomly, like I was selling drugs back in the day and giving out my, my cards and giving out like my postcards and going on the subway. I mean, I remember going to like D train, F train and just making announcements and like, ladies and gentlemen, my name is Cole Smarte. I run combat, blah, blah, blah. You know, come work out with me. You know, here's my fly. If you want a free workout, but, uh, and so it was just, non-stop asking and relentless and just kept showing up i mean i think after like a year i might have had like a group of five people out there and i thought i made it you know i was like damn i just i was charging like 20 bucks a class and i, I made 100 bucks and i was like you know this is this is what it is and uh, it was just crazy you know and but i it's been eight years now you know since i've been home and just continue showing up delivering a great product and and the demand started going wild after, like, I started renting out a little small ballet studio and people started coming in. And I remember the day I had, like, 12 people in a 500-square-foot space and it was tight, you know. And then there was people outside waiting to get in. And back then, I, I had a clipboard and an iPhone 4 and I'm just passing out flyers with, you know, the time I'm starting and just spreading the message. And... So people showing up, you know, ready to work out, but I couldn't fit them. And I remember sticking like 18 people, close to 20 people in a 500 square foot space. And people looked around like, yo, I got no fucking room. And I'm like, this is how prison is, you know, like we stick you like sardines in a can. And I started just playing off with the prison theme and, and people started laughing and we just started working out and moving and with the small little constrained space we had. And it, and it worked, you know, and I think from there, uh, it just really gave me the opportunity to hire somebody coming out of the system. You know, the people that I knew, uh, I met Sultan Malik, um, incredible trainer. He's actually being private contracted by Men's Health now. And yeah, I mean, it's just, it's, it's crazy. You know, I've, I've hired 50 people now. Um, that is, I mean, your story is incredible. And that is one of, one of the many inspiring things about you and what you've done is that you have used this as an opportunity to give those opportunities back to other people who've been formerly incarcerated. And something that I really would love to just hear from you about is what that experience has been like for you. And almost like if there was one thing that 
you could leave other business owners with and other people who are, you know, employee seekers in terms of like, what should you know about the importance of giving people a chance about what it's like to hire formerly incarcerated people? What would you want to leave people with? I feel like, you know, I'm going to tell you the truth. Uh, like it's been not easy. Mm -hmm. There's just a lot of barriers that they had to face to transition back into the workforce. Mm -hmm. You know, for example, like I remember hiring Sarita who did 22 years in prison, went in 94 and came out, you know, like four years ago. And, um, and I remember sending like a calendar invite for like a team meeting and, and she didn't show up. And this was like the first meeting and she just didn't know what a calendar invite was. And like, I sat down and be like, yeah. And, and I asked her, I was like, yo, why, why you didn't show up? She was like, what are you talking about? And I was like, yo, to the meeting, I'll send the account. She was like, what is that? You know? So like I had to sit down and like, and that, that created more opportunities for me to give more skills and, and more wraparound services for people coming home. But the best thing of hiring somebody coming out of the system is the is the trust, the like the loyalty is there. You know what I mean? Like everybody that I have a retention rate of like three years, you know, like people stick around and they and even after they leave to do whatever they want to do, like, you know, they, they come back and it's been a, a family and and it's great to hear like this Jamal now, you know, he was an older guy. He was managing the studio. He did like 12 years in prison. And now he's like managing sets up for HBO, you know, like it's just great. It, there's just so many different stories that I could highlight, you know. It's like you put in that time up front to actually support people to get back, really to get back on their feet, right? To even know what what the world that they're currently living in is like when they've been gone for so long. And then that payoff is not only do you have an incredibly loyal employee who's so grateful for you having given them the opportunity, but you're actually supporting that person really to go on and be able to thrive. And their own personal community start changing. You know what I mean? Like their own families. So it's not just only affecting that one person. Like most of these people have kids, you know what I mean? Like, or they have family members or siblings, you know, that look up to them. So like, they just start, the, the whole dynamic starts, you know, growing. Yeah. And so you've hired 50 people and will you share your recidivism rate? Because we know that in the United States, an average of two out of three people is rearrested within the first three years of their release. So that's the baseline. And we have a zero recidivism rate. So that means no, no one has gone back into the system. You know what I mean? Like, so what I think primarily worked for us, first of all, we had, we created like great relationships with parole and like things have gone down where like I get a call from a parole officer and saying like hey you know where's this person and it's six in the morning and they're you know knocking on the door and they're not but they're stuck in transit when you're on parole you're not supposed to leave your house until you're 7 a.m and you're supposed to go back in 7 7 p.m or 9 p.m you know so curfew technicality violations are are a real thing you know and we've been able to uh, work around that and and we create a great relationship where they trust me, you know what I mean? And I tell them, hey, they're on their way here or they work me, you know what I mean? So it has worked for us. And then our community just like, just trust each other. Like mm -hmm. I've had two guys that like relapsed, you know, went down a crazy 
row. You know, one guy was a heroin addict and he had a lot of family that was lost and, and went back into that world. And so we got him into rehab and try to get as much help as we, we can, you know. So I think the, the uh, between all the trainers and staff, like we all got each other's backs, you know, and I don't think you see that in any other company, you know, it's more of a family than, than just work. Yeah. And there is this concept, a psychologist, Carl Rogers, who developed this concept of unconditional positive regard. And I feel like what you were just talking about kind of brings that to mind for me of like, assume the best of people and assume that people are that what they're doing isn't malicious, that they're doing their best. And it allows you to see really the humanity in people in a different way and to be able to support when somebody does relapse, when somebody, you know, we're all human and we all make mistakes and we all slip up and, you know, seeing the humanity. It's a hard, you know, it's a, it's a roller coaster, but for the grace of God, I pushed through and like still, still here, you know what I mean? And it's, and it's working. Yeah. Well, and is there anything else that you would want to share as to how we as a society can do a better job of supporting people who are reentering the community after spending time incarcerated? There's uh, a lot of programs out there, you know, like Fortune Society, the Five Ventures. There's a lot of programs where you could do some volunteer work, you know, become that Mm -hmm. mentor. I mean, just simply coming to Combody and taking a class, you know, you'll see the interaction. You know, there's a lot of people that have never met anybody that's been incarcerated that come to work out with us. Uh, the majority are young professionals that, you know, grew up in the middle of nowhere sometimes and they move to the Lower East Side and like they come work out with us, you know, and they, they start seeing that interaction between, you know, and they're like, hey, this, this person is a great person. Why? I would never think that person's been incarcerated. You know what I mean? So it just really starts changing perceptions. And with just coming in here and supporting us, I mean, you, you know, you know, the back end support. I mean, like I've been talking about it, the social impact behind it. You know, it's, it's incredible. I'm helping people with housing. Like we have a housing unit in the Bronx um, that my, a few of my employees still live in there. You know, there's a, food, clothing, all this, all the resources that, that we need. We're here. Yeah. I mean, there's a million and a half things. We, we don't even, we don't even put it out there, but we, we need to start um, putting it out there once in the world so people can know. Well, when you do, uh, and there's somewhere for us to be able to direct people, please let me know. Absolutely. So the stigma we were talking about earlier, I think about it as like a a label or a name tag that you have to wear. And I think like you talking about the ID card is a perfect example, right? It's like you get out of prison and then you're labeled as the formerly incarcerated person as like the, you know, the worst thing you've done. And if you could go back to yourself, yourself being released and take that off and write a new name tag that says what it is that you would want people to see about who you are, what would it say? I think like a go-getter, hustler, uh, somebody that has grit. And I don't know, I'm just very, very optimistic. I always see uh, one of my trainers, he's very pessimistic. His name is Derek, but and he jokes around a lot. He's a comedian, but he's like, I don't know how you see the great in people. Even when they do something bad to you, you always see the great in people. I'm like, I don't care. Like everybody was born good. Nobody 
came out of a womb, you know, with a knife, you know, ready to kill somebody. You know what I mean? We all learn these negative actions through our society around us, you know? Definitely. Well, Koss, honestly, thank you so much. This has been really incredible to sit down with you. And can you please tell our listeners how they can find you and support what you're doing? Yeah, so you can check me out at Combody, uh, our Instagram, if, if you have Instagram or TikTok or whatever platform, C-O-N-B-O-D-Y. Uh, you can come check out our, our classes virtually now, live streaming every single day at Combody.com or come in person, we're running classes in the park if you don't feel comfortable coming indoors yet, you know, but uh, we're doing everything. Uh, we're here in the Lower East Side in Manhattan uh, and we're looking to expand worldwide. Incredible, thank you. Oh, thank you, I appreciate it. Thank you for listening. It truly means the world that you have taken time out of your day and spent it with us. Tune in next week to hear Chris Wilson's story. Chris was convicted of murder and sentenced to life in prison. He shares about the events that landed him there, and then the incredible story of mercy that saw his sentence reduced. We will talk about the power of second chances and what he has been able to accomplish since his release. If you'd like to support the show, there are two things that will really help us out. First, Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Second, check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash thefieldpodcast, where you can access more content like this. See you next time.